Well, it's been so long since I lasted a podcast that it took me quite a while to find the app on my phone to actually record. So I apologize for being absent. I've been working very hard on several other things. For one, we're building a house, hopefully here soon. I've been scraping together the down payment, and I am um, looking forward to hopefully hearing back next week from the bank that we're approved, and we can start actually building the house that God told us to build a year and a half ago, but that we've been saving up for over three years for. Um, Additionally, we're launching Crush It TV. It's launched um, back in May, and I'm just constantly trying to to make it better and build it, and it's all self-funded, so that's a difficult task. So it requires more time where you don't have money. So um, I wanted to jump back into the podcast, though, doing a topical piece here, and then uh, I also want to give you probably what you actually come here for, which is uh, the next chapter in Exodus. Topical-wise, though, if you don't already know, or if you're my kids listening to this in the future, we're going through in 2020 a quote-unquote pandemic. Basically, there's a virus going around, and it particularly affects people uh, in their old age, 65 or over is 80% of the cases. And if you are 80 years or older, that's sort of the average uh, person that will die from the virus is 80 years old. So, it's particularly bad if you're old or if you have pre-existing conditions, especially lung issues, which my parent, my mom has a chronic lung disease and is a cancer survivor. So she's sort of a double whammy. So we have to be very careful with her to protect her. Now, on the flip side, the state of unrest, the um, the fear that has gripped my nation and nations around the world has caused for various civil liberties to be suspended one of those being actually being able to go to church. They have opened them back up somewhat with limited capacity. You're allowed to go to church now up to like 25% of capacity, and it varies by state. But in California, for example, they don't even let you worship because uh, singing makes you, you know, you're, you're projecting <laughs> saliva uh, further into the air as more of like an aerosol and people will be able to catch it more. So depending on your psychology, what you're predisposed to do and and how you make judgments and choices in your life, you may be for the restrictions on these liberties in order to save life, or you may be against them um, because you believe that the liberty is more important than the life or you're willing to take the risks. Now, I think most people in our society are hypocrites either way because the same people who would say uh, let's limit the civil liberties are the same people that uh, have recently been out in the streets protesting and some of them rioting um, to protest police brutality. That movement has morphed into more of like an anti-racism uh, thing. And then now, uh, which is what I'm sort of going to talk about today, it's morphed even more into sort of a, a Marxist um drive on society but so the same people that would say yeah you should not be able to go to bars and go to church will say we should be able to gather in groups of tens of thousands in the streets to protest so everyone is sort of um a hypocrite in their own way because a lot of people that would like to go to the churches or whatever against the the protests and riots um i say that i don't have any proof for that i guess but I would assume that there's a a dichotomy between people on the left politically and on the right politically and um, a a division between them. Now, me in particular, I say I I err on the side of liberty over safety. That doesn't mean I'm correct. That just is how I'm programmed and um, 
And I believe that that's a, a hallmark of American exception uh, to the rule. I think most other countries err on the side of safety. I think Americans typically would rather be free and live shorter lives than have their liberties curtailed and live longer lives. At least me in particular, I believe that, and I think that our forefathers believed that too. Now, if you don't believe that, that doesn't mean you're any less American or anything like that. It's not what I'm saying. Um, I'm just sort of, for my children's sake in the future, I'm sort of giving you the lay of the land and how I see it. But one of the things that has been happening in our society over the past X number of decades, since at least 1969, it's kind of the, you know, that's when Martin Luther King was assassinated. Um, Since that time, I feel like the church, the Christian church, has progressively become nominal in society. And that word probably means different things to different people. I sort of equate it to um, its influence is negligible. And the differentiation between those within the church and those outside the church in behavior is negligible. I recently had a friend of mine who's a pastor, and he basically said the we were talking about trying to save marriages and people from getting divorced because we know so many. And uh, he was basically saying, yeah, the divorce rate within the church is no different than the divorce rate outside the church. And I wanted to argue that that's not exactly true, but the way he worded it, it actually is. And the reason for this is because when those polls are conducted, they just ask you whether or not you're a Christian. They do not ask you whether or not you actually you practice and have the hallmarks of Christianity in your life. When they poll that way, they find that the divorce rate is actually different. So what you're doing is you are polling the American church and you're finding that it's nominal until you actually make more specific, nuanced um, questions, such as, do you attend church regularly, you know, outside of Easter and Christmas? Do you pray regularly? Do you read scripture regularly? Do you fast regularly? These different um, aspects of Christianity, do you actually practice them? Are you a quote-unquote practicing Christian? And so whenever you ask those questions, you do see that there's a difference in the lives of these people. Um, and the divorce rate is one thing that act, that goes down significantly. <clears throat> um, my, my point is, there's the church in America, and then there is what I would consider the true church. And the American church is progressively looking less and less like the true church and more and more like society at large. Part of this has been our fault for compromising and not differentiating ourselves from society at large. I remember C.S. Lewis wrote an article, basically, you know, in a... In, Modern times, we're up to a point now where we're arguing whether or not things like polygamy should be allowed. Um, We're sort of past the argument over gay marriage, because that has been 
um, legalized via a Supreme Court decision. But in C.S. Lewis's day, the argument, the real argument was whether or not you should be able to get divorced. Now, as you might know, the English church actually broke off from the Catholic church because the king at the time wanted to have a divorce that the Pope would not let him have. And so then he decided, hey, I'm going to do this and I'm going to create my own church. And so he created the Church of England. See, in C.S. Lewis's time, which would be, you know, I say that that's sort of like the 30s through the 50s is sort of whenever he wrote most of his stuff. I like to think about the 40s is when mere Christianity was broadcasted and, and published. Um, this was the arg- this was the big debate of the time as far as marriage is concerned, whether or not you could actually be divorced. You've come a long way from that argument. Uh, to where, again, it's like in the church, we kind of don't even, it's not even a big deal anymore. And part of this discussion I was having with this friend of mine who was a children's pastor was the heartbreak that brings that I have to beg Christians, which I have done, not to get divorced. Um, so one of the things that Lewis wrote was, well, there should be two types of marriages. This is what he wrote, right? And suddenly, you know, in America, we're like, no, this is wrong. Let's not do this separate but equal kind of thing. But he basically said there should be two types of marriages. You should have one that's married in the Christian sense of the word and one that's married in the civil or secular sense of the word. And he's like, the distinction should be sharp. And maybe that is something that the church should start adopting is a different way to symbolize your marriage could be a different ring or something else that they could adopt for that. And maybe eventually the church starts doing things like this to differentiate itself. Um, But ultimately he was like, okay, those in the state sense of marriage, you know, they should be able to get divorces. And then Lewis would argue, but those in the Christian sense of the marriage should not be able to get divorces. Now, he's not saying you should, there's no, under no circumstances, should you be able to get a divorce. He would argue that basically it's the same criteria Jesus gave us in the gospel, which is uh, the contract of marriage is null and void when you die or if a spouse is unfaithful. Boom. Otherwise, though, the majority of divorces in America are for um more secular reasons, such as irreconcilable differences, which just basically is a catch-all term for uh, we couldn't get along and we couldn't get past the fact that we couldn't get along, so we got divorced. Now, the the number one really, like, when you break that down, sided reason is usually finances, which is very ironic because marriage is actually typified by an increase in finances, which is a reasonable, rational... um, uh, conclusion to come to because if you have two parents working, you're going to make more money. Or if you have one parent who is in charge of domestic duties at home, cooking, cleaning, raising children, all that, and you have another parent who's sold in charge of breadwinning, you're still going to make more money than a single person because you have that burden lifted. And so these people can more specialize and crush their jobs on the daily without having to worry about these other things that they have to do when they get home or vice versa. The one who's been crushing it at home doesn't have to worry about going out and bringing home the meat to then have to cook it themselves. Either way, marriage is actually an indicator of wealth. And in fact, if uh, statistically married couples over the course of their entire life, they make not two times, but four times more wealth than their single counterparts. This is a biblical principle whenever, I think it's in Proverbs, 
I don't know, Ecclesiastes maybe? I feel like it's a Solomon kind of thing. Uh, look it up once this, once this is over so you know I'm not lying to you. But basically, it's this principle that um, two are better than one. And uh, a three-chord strand is not easily broken. I think that's Ecclesiastes. Um, I think it also also says that if uh, one lies down, you know, they're going to be cold. But if two lie down together, then they'll be able to keep warm. The idea is basically that the return on the efforts of two is greater than the return of one. And we know this is true when it comes to, like, teams of oxen. Same same principle. It's like you would think that two oxen can, can take um, two times the amount of... of uh, weight and pull it but it's really it's like three times the amount there's this principle of multiplication the sum is greater than the individual parts okay that was a lot more on like on marriage but it it makes sense that there are certain principles god has placed in life that if walked out properly will be as jesus called it in the Gospels, like a city on a hill or a light that you is on a lampstand. You don't cover it up. And the problem, in my opinion, with the American church right now is it covers it up. It has become negligible. There's no difference. It's almost just as dark on the inside in fruit and um, in belief and conviction as it is on the outside. Now, some people, my Catholic audience, will be saying, ha-ha, this is your fault, Protestants, because you broke away from the church, you no longer have, like, hardline beliefs anymore, you don't excommunicate people in the church that refuse to repent, um, etc., etc. Now, I believe the Protestant Reformation was necessary for many reasons, if not you know, none, the least of them, the greatest of which probably would be the proliferation of the gospel, actually, you know, translating scripture into the, the Vulgate, the common language of the people. So you didn't go to church and you didn't understand what was going on, right? Like your, your pastor's not just preaching and uh, Latin and you have to take their word for it. And uh, oftentimes a, a mistranslation, right? So, the Protestant Reformation had a lot of good to it, is what I'm saying. But at the same time, the Catholics do have a point in that we have uh, so many denominations and so many varied beliefs that sometimes we believe we can take major doctrinal truths and compromise on them with our culture and still retain the, the the tree of life, right? Like, we feel like we can um, corrupt that tree and still bear fruit. And the tree I'm referring to is the teachings and life of Jesus. So, there are, there are different doctrines that we can disagree on that are fine to disagree on. One of the big ones I find myself constantly in disagreement on with some of my like most loved and and respected friends is creationism, which I disagree with. You know, people actually believing the Earth is only six thousand years old, and uh, people believing that it was made in um, six literal days. So, 
that's a doctrine that I personally believe we can disagree on, and it doesn't really change anything about the Christian faith. It's a, um, it's a, a secondary doctrine. Doctrines, though, that you should not compromise as a Christian on would be things like the divinity of Jesus, things like uh, the doctrine of sin. And sin itself is not something that you should compromise on. There are certain uh, convictions, some leeway that like you find in Romans 14, read Romans 14 if you don't believe me. You're going to find things like, um, you know, some people celebrate certain holidays, other people don't. You shouldn't judge the one that celebrates them and you shouldn't look down on the people that don't. This was a big deal whenever we were talking about at the time that Paul was writing that in Romans. You're, you're talking about, um, you know, uh, pagan Gentiles, my ancestors, like the Germans, becoming Christians. And they still want to celebrate things like Easter or whatever. They have all these feasts. And then you have Jews, though, they're saying, no, like you can't do that. And then you also have Jews saying you need to celebrate Passover. And then you have Gentiles being like, I don't, I don't want to celebrate that. That's not like even my history. And so Paul is saying, well, for things like this, like you shouldn't look down on people that want to celebrate things when they're celebrating them to the glory of God. And you shouldn't, you know, you shouldn't judge them. You shouldn't look down on people that don't do those things. And so sometimes we like to call this conditional sin. It would, another uh, object of that would be like drinking. Like in the Bible, drinking is not considered a sin. Like people who believe that read Romans or not Romans, read Proverbs 31 and tell me how you square that proverb with calling drinking all the time a sin. Or, you know, in Timothy, where Paul recommends that Timothy start yeah, drinking more wine and stop drinking water, which could be polluted and causing a gastrointestinal issue. People say, well, the drinks weren't as strong back then. There was watered down more. And you are probably correct, but that doesn't mean that there was no alcohol. But the point that Paul would write in Romans 14 is, if you encounter someone that thinks drinking is a sin, well, you shouldn't do it. You shouldn't drink in front of them. Because you might cause them to stumble. You might cause them to do something that's against their conscience. And at the same time, if you're the one that doesn't, that believes drinking is a sin, well, then you shouldn't not, I mean, uh, sorry, well, you shouldn't look down upon your brother that does. You shouldn't judge them. Who are you to judge someone else's slave? So these are um, secondary issues, though. These are not like main Christian doctrine um, things that we all should be in agreement on. Uh, and the problem with the, the modern Christian church in America is we have taken primary doctrines and decided that they should be conditional also. And what has occurred is the modern church has started to reflect culture rather than setting the tone for culture. Rather than being that city on a hill where it's separate, where we're saying, no, we're not going to do these things. We're not going to excuse these actions that we know explicitly are wrong. Instead of doing that, we've coddled, we've compromised, we've let our, and a lot of times, our politics inform our faith rather than our faith inform our politics. And as such, the church in America has become nominal. 
And so I wrote this letter to some some of my friends and you know a couple of pastors, people I respect, people that are that will disagree with me. And I know for a fact at least one of them is was is just like this is, I disagree with this, right? Like, that's what they were going to say. Um, another one said, I totally agree with this. But I wanted to sort of read this letter because it really talks about what I feel in this point in history we are struggling with in the church even. And that is a the fact that the church is outflanked on every side. And so, like, I read this, stati- I have this statistic in, in this letter that you'll hear me read later, but it basically says that, you know, in the past decade, in America, the number of people in America who call themselves Christian has gone down from 77% to 65%. That's tw- that's a loss of 12%. Um, in Canada, you know, they're losing about a million Christian members every year. So the church is not growing. The church is shrinking. Uh, and what you will find, though, is that on the flip side, non-theists, that's people who don't believe in God, that's growing. It's from seven, in the last decade, from 17% of America to 26%. That's more than a quarter. More than a quarter. That's one in four people you meet in America do not believe in God. They're what we call the nuns. It could be agnostics. It could be atheists. They could be anti-theists. That's your hardline militant Christian or militant uh, atheists. But one in four people don't believe in God. So what does this say about the church's uh, impact on our culture? It's dwindling. It's dying. It's negligible. The quote-unquote culture war that the Christian tried, church tried to wage in the 70s failed. They lost. They may have went about it the wrong way. And in fact, they, I think they did in some ways. Um, in my opinion, the way you win a culture war is by impacting the people who live in that culture. And then you, you're the con the idea is to influence influencers. And by doing so, you just do exactly what Jesus did, which was he picked 12 people, people who you may not even see as influencers, but he did and train them And those people go and they train 12 more. And it spreads that way. What we've done as a ch- as a church body is we've, instead of doing this, like relational, building relationships one-on-one and creating disciples, we've decided to um, tangle in the culture just like those who hate the church do, which is through Facebook and Twitter and whatever. And I, I am personally, um, I have the same issue. Now, I do try to build disciples and I do try to boldly preach the gospel one-on-one with people where I can. Um, but when it comes to using the elements, the culture has Twitter, Facebook, YouTube, or whatever, we're terrible at it as a church. We're terrible at it. We don't look any different and we don't offer any solution that the, that, that politics isn't offering. And in the end, we know that those solutions, because they're not Christ centered, they fail. More often than not. Um, so what has happened in America since the early 70s until now is progressively a wave of what is called cultural Marxism has seeped in, become stronger and stronger as the church has become complacent and in the present era, many churches have 
become parties to it. Now, earlier I said the, the church in America has gone down from 77% you know, percent to 65% in the last decade. The majority of churches losing adherents are actually ones that are more um, progressive and liberal in nature. I hate using the term liberal. I think it's used incorrectly. So I'm just going to say progressive in nature. In, in, in what I mean by that is they have reflected culture. They're the ones that have uh, allowed for gay marriages to be done in their churches um, and uh, pastors that are openly in sin. Now, again, this isn't to say that th- those churches are filled with people that are worse than other churches. The other churches have their sinners, typically hypocrisy, because there are people that say we should not do this, but then they do it themselves, as opposed to people that say, yeah, we should do this, <laughs> and then do it themselves. So it's a lot harder to be hypocritical when you approve of everything. But um, the conviction, though, is not there. And all churches all around need to work on excommunicating hypocrites, especially pastors. And I can name one like that. I mean, there was a, a pastor a couple. So there's a couple that are good friends with with my wife, and I love them to death anyways. They're a mixed-race couple. He's black. She's, well, she's very dark-skinned, and she's actually, but she's actually Irish. It's very interesting. Um, but anyways, a pastor at their church just flat out told her that he did not believe in a mixed-race marriage. It's like, what are you supposed to say to that? Like, where, where do you get that from Scripture? You don't. And so that kind of pastor needs to be removed and excommunicated from that church, right? So the more, quote-unquote, conservative churches have their issues, and they need to fix them. Um, but it's the more liberal ones, especially mainline churches, that are losing adherence. And I argue the reason they're losing adherence at a faster rate than others um, than Orthodox churches, that's a better way for me to say it, is because they don't look any different than society at large. They don't teach anything contrary to what people learn through politics and the American culture. And they don't offer anything new. Um, And I'm not just talking about like rules and regulations. I'm talking about even... Jesus being divine and in demanding lordship because of that. So these churches are dying in America while cultural Marxism is getting its its lift. Now, Marxism initially was a primarily economic ideology. It was originally about the working class, the proletariat, being... Um, oppressed by the bourgeoisie, which was the class that owned private property. So these would be your employers, your company owners. Um, Back then, it would have been royalty, landowners, and these people are hiring the proletariat. And back, back during the Industrial Revolution, even, the working class didn't have a lot of protections. And this is why unions are actually historically a good thing. I don't think, I think they've served their purpose now, but 
whatever. It's a, it's again, it's a, like a, it's a political belief that that doesn't inform my faith. Um, well, that only works when people in society have no means of prosperity. And America kind of showed that you can have a equal opportunity and means towards prosperity through capitalism, through the freedoms that we offer. And that's why that's one of our greatest exports was showing what a, a free republic could look like, how capitalism with minimal regulation, and by that I mean some regulation is necessary to avoid monopolies and things that are anti-capitalist, cronyism. Um, when that is exported to nations like China, for example, they actually started seeing prosperity. But what what ends up happening whenever, say, the economy is, is doing okay, um, there's a different route that, that Marxism sort of can take, and that – because – what it originally did was it pitted the working class against the employment class. Well, what happens when you have the upward mobility that you find in a nation like ours? That philosophy evolved, and it has decided to create other classes and distinctions in society and pit them against one another. And so what this has done is created an extreme amount of social upheaval which has culminated through you know the 2016 election and even more so today. And it doesn't help that we've dealt with this pandemic. It doesn't help that we've um, dealt with real legitimate police abuse. But the way that society has approached these problems, and in particular my grievances with – because I expect society to do those things, but I don't expect it from the church. The church – historically through Marxist revolution is blotted out anywhere because what ends up happening is it becomes seen as one of those classes that is the oppressor class and it's seen as a threat to the state. So the church in America is actually in a lot of cases becoming party to Marx to Marxism and what it's doing is it's becoming its own death knell. So it doesn't see it yet, but that is the end. <clears throat> and if you look at places, and I mentioned this in the letter, like in Canada, um, where they have hate speech laws and where pastors who street preach, even loving, you know, loving messages can be arrested. That is what ends up happening <laughs> That is where this is going culturally in America to where you can be quote unquote canceled in society for your ideology and they take things like free speech and determine that speech is violence. And in fact, now they're saying silence is violence. So <clears throat> What happens to the true Christian church in a society that embraces these sorts of things is it has to go underground because it can be easily convicted of quote-unquote thought crime. Um, so this podcast is way more political than previous ones, but it sort of necessitates it because my main argument is that the church is giving into 
American foolishness in American politics rather than showing the third way out. It's either giving into extreme progressivism or extreme conservatism without um, showing where Jesus stands on these things. Uh, so I'm going to go ahead and, and get into the letter. The last thing I'll say before that is Marxism is extremely attractive for the Christian. And in fact, you will find people argue that without Christianity, Marxism would not exist because Christianity was the first time once it was implemented on a larger scale was the first time really there were corporate um, large scale discussions on victim victim classes. And you do find that in Judaism, like you, you, you hundred percent do like God is very concerned with those who are victims on a societal level who do not receive justice. And so as such, without Christianity, Marxism never would have really come about. Um, but there comes a point where it becomes perverted and in the seeking of justice, Injustice is committed, and we've seen this occur in every Marxist society in history. And eventually you see the oppression and the calling of the Christian church. And so I mentioned two examples of this, one in Romania and one in China in this letter. So I'm just going to read this letter. Feel free to disagree with it or hate about it, hate on it all you want, um, but it's sort of how I, I, I find myself right now in this moment. So <clears throat> here we go. I find myself against almost everyone in society, including the church at this moment in history. I believe the church has increasingly begun to reflect our culture rather than set our culture. This is shown in the schism within several denominations on the issue of gay marriage, for example. Churches have sought a way to please our culture and to compromise God's ideal with American politics. Um, so this is talking about the, the several mainline uh, Christian churches that have taken God's word and made it subject to the culture they live in rather than the reverse of that, such what is, which is what the early church did, who lived in an objectively worse and more sinful culture than we do today. You're talking about people who lived under Emperor Nero, who burned Christians at the stake, Right. You're talking about John the Baptist, who um, was basically upset that uh, the king would would uh, do a marriage that was sinful and was beheaded in the end for for his outspokenness on that topic. Okay, and so instead of going against the culture and going against sin, we have churches that are embracing it. All right, the problem is cultural Marxism is pernicious in that it's attractive. C.S. Lewis wrote that a virtue becomes a demon when it becomes a god. Marxism makes the virtue equality an end in itself, and as such, it commits error and sin in that pursuit. So here I'm talking about, um, C.S. Lewis in particular was saying that any virtue divorced from the Tao, which, which for him is all the virtues put together, if it's set up and divorced from the rest of them, it can cause great evil. And he even talks about love. Love divorced from other virtues such as justice creates great evil. Many people have left their spouses because they find they love someone else. Um, I know a story about a girl who, out of love for a boy who her family did not approve of, actually uh, murdered her family so she could be with him. 
So a virtue in itself is no good. And C.S. Lewis basically says, if you set up that virtue as a god, something to be followed, irrespective of other things, then it becomes a demon, which inevitably creates great, inevitably creates great evil. Now, in, in history, Marxism and eventually communism um, creates great evil in the pursuit of a good thing, which is equality. Equality is a good thing especially equality of opportunity, equality of dignity, um, the inherent intrinsic value placed inside man and woman because they are made in the image of God. These are good things, but they can be perverted, especially when you divorce them from other values such as justice. All right. It's important the church isn't led away by the political fervor espoused by groups like Black Lives Matter, who are led by self-professed Marxists and seek to the dissolution of the nuclear family, as stated on their website. So you can actually go on their website and find that one of the things that they seek is the dissolution of the nuclear family. It is considered a like patriarchal Western idea, and... Um, and they believe that you should raise children like on a village method. <clears throat> so this is 100% opposed to the teachings of God, who Jesus explicitly said man will leave his family and, be, and cleave to his wife, and they become one flesh. This is probably a reflection of, well, it's 100% a reflection of Marxism, um, and eventually the, the, the idea is that the state should raise children instead of fathers and mothers. And a lot of our policies currently reflect this. But also within the black community, you're finding there's a 72% out of wedlock birth rate. So this is already reflected within the community and is wanting to be outsourced on a larger scale. This has nothing to do with the general idea of Black Lives Matters, which is basically saying that um, black people are uh, disproportionately discriminated against by the police. Now, whether or not you agree or disagree with that statement, uh, you can at least say that the aim of equality between blacks and other ethnicities in America is good. The general gist of this idea that you should be um, equal, irrespective of your skin color in America, is a good aim. That is very different, though, than the organization itself, which has a Marxist agenda. And you'll even find the founders saying that they are, quote-unquote, trained Marxists. My issue is the church actually pairing itself with this movement without a full understanding of what the aim and the end goal is of that movement. And it will be the destruction of the church itself. And it's against the things that the church are supposed to stand for, such as the family. Okay, here we go. The object is to replace the family with a socialist state. What this has historically led to is the destruction of the Christian church. I say destruction, but perhaps the culling of it would be more apt. There's a good book called Tortured for Christ, written by a pastor who survived the Nazi occupation of Romania, followed by the Communist Revolution. And I recommend people read this. Under communism, anywhere you go in the world, the church is banned or bastardized. Even in China, where they have a state version of the church, you'll find they censor the Bible. And so an example of this is uh, 
they'll take out the entire book of Revelation. Anything that competes with the omnipotence of the state in a society like this is um, quenched. And so Christianity is not allowed, in its true form, is not allowed to have a head in a society like this. All right, there's another good book I recommend called Heavenly Man about a pastor in the underground church in China. This is the aim of American politics right now at this very moment, and the church is asleep or becoming an instrument in its own death. It must not align itself with the desire to implement things like hate speech laws, for example. It must not push the notion of group identity and group burden with the ideology such as white privilege or abolish whiteness. We've seen hate speech laws used in places like Canada to persecute Christian pastors who preach about sin, and we've seen placing guilt on group identity used to liquidate Jews during World War II and the Kulaks in Soviet Russia. Most people know about the Jews in World War II, the Kulaks in Soviet Russia, most people do not, but... The Kulaks were a group of people who were landowners. Now, these weren't like land barons. These weren't people that owned thousands of tracts of, of land, but uh, initially started out if you owned, you know, 50 acres, you would be persecuted. You would uh, have that taken from you and you would be hauled off to a work, a work camp. And what the problem with the problem with Marxism is the group identity continues to grow. So the capitalist, the, the Kulak who owned 50 acres was taken first, but eventually the definition became someone that owns even a little bit more than their neighbor. Why? Because that was considered unequal and they wanted a society of equality. So what they would do is even if you had three acres of land or five acres of land that you farmed, you would have your assets seized by the state and you would be persecuted and hauled off. And people would turn on their neighbors, turn them into the state out of envy and jealousy of the fact that they owned a little bit more land, irrespective of whether or not they stole that land or actually worked for it, right? And this is where you can pursue the aim of something like equality with, um, with for, you know, forgetting that justice is a virtue that's just as important. And taking something from someone that they've rightfully earned is an evil. So, the problem with group identity and, and placing a burden upon people for that is it's irrespective of individual um, characteristics and uh, individual merit. So <clears throat> you can be blamed for something that you did not do. And so right now we have um, a huge movement to place the burden shame and blame of something like slavery upon someone like my two-year-old daughter, Ella, because she has white skin. And that's it. That's it. She should feel ashamed of herself as having white privilege because of her skin. And that is all. It doesn't matter if, you know, my family came, the German side came after slavery had already ended. It doesn't matter that my family hails from the northern states of Ohio or uh, in West Virginia, and therefore were in the Union, it doesn't matter whether they may have fought for the Union and died to end slavery. It doesn't matter that 600,000 Americans gave up their lives, right, to pay for that sin. The individual aspects of it do not matter. And that is why group identity is not... What's the word I'm looking for? I want to call it evil, but I don't want to push you away too hard. <laughs> um, I will just say this. It's not God's ideal. He judges you based on what you do, 
not based on what people who look like you do or have done. Full stop. You're not going to find that anywhere in the Bible. And so why would we put the burden and judgment on people that even God himself does not put upon you? All right. Marxism denies human nature and the Christian doctrine of sin. It believes re-education can be used to suppress strife rather than the regeneration of the heart through Christ to purify us of sin. It castigates humanity and individual freedom by forbidding thought crime and dissension from the state or the mob. It inevitably eats its own and always eats the true Christian church because the true Christian church will reject that the state rules in the place of God and that justice can be sought by unjust means. Now, you've seen this in society currently where people like J.K. Rowling, for example, who just five years ago would be considered extremely progressive in society are now getting eaten by other progressives because she um, will, will have the audacity to say that if you menstruate, you're a woman. Um, and so that's seen as transphobic. The thing that ends up happening through Marxism is equal shared misery. And it doesn't matter if you think you are on that side, if you think you're on that right side right now, in the end, you will be eaten. <laughs> That's just how it goes. If you're the Kulak that has that only owns three acres of land, and you're pointing fingers at the person that owns 100 acres, and they're being hauled off, and you think that's just, they will come for you. Historically, they will come for you. And so unless the church actually stands up for the idea of free thought, which is an inalienable right, it's the one thing that um, it's the six inches in your brain that no one can control, whether you're in prison or wherever. No one has the ability to take the, the, the free thought from you, that right, because it's given to you by God. And this is a, a extreme theist Christian understanding of the human existence. But a society like this that we are cultivating right now will try to strip that from you. And if they can't take your thoughts, they will try to take your job. They'll try to take your reputation. They'll try to take your, um, your family from you. And this is not something the church should stand for. And what I'm seeing is the church actually giving into this. The church actually attempting to do re-education of group identity, of people subject to group identity. It's the same thing that is going to end the church in America. And you don't have to be a prophet to see that. You literally just only have to read history. All right. It rejects that the family should be dismantled. This is what the true Christian church. It rejects the family should be dismantled. And right there, anyone who believes that is opposed to Marxism. And is opposed to an organization like Black Lives Matters at its core. And yet, the church on multiple fronts are supporting it. And the people who are in the middle, more like me, who support equality, irrespective of race, but does not support the organization itself, those people are too afraid to speak out. Why? Because of the thought crime issue of cancellation. But if a church is not bold enough to do that, then they have an issue of being fearful of men, and they would rather face judgment of God than the, I'm sorry, than the judgment of man. 
They put the fear of man above the fear of God. All right. And the true church also faces the issue of quarreling over sin. Whereas a Christian may say homosexuality or same-sex sex is a sin to be repented of based on God's word, our culture will eventually equate this to violence and will punish the church for it. And it already does that in uh, places like Canada. You can't preach what I just said. It's considered violence. A great portion of our land, and even those within the Christian church, are worshiping emotional fervor. So this is a huge issue. People are placing their emotions um, and letting them run rampantly without uh, subjecting them to reason or God's word. Emotions are good, but they must be checked by the mind and submit themselves to God's word. This goes for whether one is part of the culture of reaction or extremism, the right or the left. So it doesn't matter. Politically speaking, it doesn't matter whether you're on the right or the left of politics. Your emotions should not rule you. They should submit to your mind and to God's word. All right, so the problem I see is we aren't. Instead of preaching that there is no condemnation in Christ, we're preaching one should feel guilty about things done by different people decades or even hundreds of years ago. The Holy Spirit convicts us of sin we must repent for, but Satan condemns us for sin we've already been forgiven of or for things we don't need to be forgiven of. So the the Holy Spirit convicts you of sin that you are currently doing. But Satan is always trying to make you feel guilty for things that you've done in the past that you've already been forgiven for, or sometimes he tries to make you feel guilty of things that are not even your sin. And it's an issue when the church starts becoming a tool of Satan to condemn people for sin that their great-great-great-grandfather may have committed. Okay? That is called condemnation. This is an issue I see in the current church where it is making itself, instead of on the side of truth and justice, on the side of guilt, shame, and blame. Okay, uh, it's a trap. There will be a backlash and suffering will be in our future because of it. The backlash I mean is, if you have this extremism of Marxism on one side, you're going to have a reactionary, fascist extremism on the other side, reaction. And uh, if you ever study how Hitler came to power... It was in reaction to the rising power of communists in Germany. And I'm not saying that has to be America. What I am saying is that if you are in the Christian church, your job is to condemn both those things. It is. Your job is to be more in love and in, 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 in depth in scripture than in your politics. And I can be a bad example for that, but I'm trying to change. I really am. I'm trying to be more about the things of God than things about my society. Um, And to be equal parts condemning of extremism and reaction. Because either way, it leads to misery and suffering. And it leads to either the shame and denigration of the church or the complete destruction of it. Pushing it underground. 
Okay. <clears throat> the Christian church is outflanked on every side in America. In the last decade, we've gone from 77% to 65% of U.S. population claiming to be Christians, a loss of 12%. We lose about 1 million members annually. Meanwhile, non-theists have grown from 17% to 26%. That means over a quarter of Americans are not theists. Those churches declining the most are the ones that have compromised with American politics, usually mainline churches. Now, this is just a statistical truth. Those with competing ideologies... Now, here I'm talking about um, the Marxists themselves. I'm talking about people like white nationalists. I'm talking about um, Muslims. I'm talking about Jews, Hindus. So competing ideologies to Christianity. Those with competing ideologies can possess greater conviction and sometimes knowledge than your average Christian. I know because I debate them all the time. The religious sect most poised to simultaneously combat and attract our growing secular and progressive population is not Christianity, but Islam. Many Muslims know scripture better than Christians. That doesn't mean they have the correct revelation or interpretation, but it does mean they're more devoted and through their conviction, they are more convincing. There's a great book called um, Seeking Allah, Finding Jesus about a Muslim who grew up... um, staunch Islamist and eventually converted to Christianity. And so it's a great look into that world if you know nothing about it. And I was shocked by this kid's ability to master scripture, including the Bible, debate a Christian in middle school about topics and things that I, as a middle schooler, would not be able to rebuff. I I did not have a grip on apologetics like this Muslim kid did until college. And yet the, the scary thing is um, they're even more devoted. They're not only more knowledgeable, but they're more devoted too than Christians are. And the same can be true of, uh, you know, secularists who, know more about apologetics than Christians do, and have a stronger conviction. Those things are attractive. They are. Uh, Wisdom, knowledge, and devotion and conviction are very attractive. And when you have a people with 25% of nuns, they are ripe for hearing the gospel. If only someone would be bold enough to share it with them. And I'm here to tell you, The people bold enough to share the ideology with them are Muslims, are uh, humanists. They're not Christians right now. We're not bold enough to combat it and to to, uh, lead people to a different way of living compared to these other um, factions. Okay. We have to keep in mind the American church is only a few decades behind those in England and the rest of Europe where Christianity has now become nominal and in name only in many places. The religious sect that is now supplanting them are Muslims who outright reject their progressive beliefs with extreme fervor and they do not care or are not afraid of being canceled for it. And that's attractive. It it just is. (laughs) Uh, whereas the average European fertility rate of Christian descent is 1.59, which is failing to replace themselves, the average Muslim is twice that amount at three. This is what happens when society adopts the ideology of disbanding the nuclear family, for example. 
And then another group comes in with strong family ties and religious convictions. In other words, the European is going to be supplanted. The Christian European is going to be supplanted because it has adopted the ideology of mainstream politics within their nations as opposed to sticking with the Christian commands and ideology that family's good, that God wants us to be fruitful and multiply, that we're not supposed to be fearful when it comes to the decision to have children. We're not supposed to be fearful when it comes to standing up for our convictions. We're not supposed to be fearful um, when it comes to uh, evangelism. And I'm telling you, the Muslims in these nations are not fearful of any of those things. And in America, the secularist humanists are not fearful of any of those things. The Marxists are not fearful of any of those things. But the Christian church is full of milksops who would rather compromise than stick to their convictions. And as such, they look just like the rest of society and do not separate themselves. And so who's attracted by that? No one's attracted by that. You're living in a society where the depression rate is skyrocketing, and yet you don't have the boldness to tell someone about Jesus. The Christian church in America will become nominal in the next 50 years if we continue to give into American politics and fail to separate ourselves by standing for Christ and justice indiscriminately. The destruction of the family, the proliferation of abortion, the redefining of marriage, man and woman, the placing of burden of group guilt, the silencing of the inalienable right to thought— the banning of worship in our California churches, the discrimination of people based on their immutable traits, these things will consign our children to a lifetime of suffering and the Christian church to the dustbin of history. In the face of all this, we must reject it without fear of cancellation or label, no matter the cost, and we must preach the gospel while praying for our nation and for our churches to endure the coming social upheaval. It's a really difficult time ahead, but I care about my, my daughters. Ella and Josephine, who's going to be born here in October. And um, I care about my friends' children, and I, don't, and I don't care what their skin color is. Irrespective of that, I care about the children of America. We're leaving them a hellhole, devoid of, of Christ, the gospel, of love, of joy. Oh my gosh, we've just stripped joy out of everything in this nation. And we've adopted strife political worship. I mean, people worship their, ident their, their, their identity in politics, Democrat, Republican. People worship their skin color. People worship everything except Jesus Christ, and it's causing our church, because it's the people within the church still doing these things. It's causing our church to be nominal, and it's going to end up creating a society of, of darkness, um, the fallout of the Soviet Union is nothing shy of darkness and depression and a people that are rejected and dejected. Now, that, that kind of people is ripe for the gospel. But I don't want us to get to that point. And so I challenge you, if you're part of the Christian church, to take the, the, the thin road, the difficult road, not the wide, easy one that our society has laid out, and be different than society. So that's it. Until the next time, this is James with The World's Last Night.